0: So this, this kingdom discussion that we have been in um, is, I, I kind of had to go through this over the last week, I don't know if this is more for me or more for you, or just for all of us. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. There are some times that I know when I go through a sermon series that this is all about you, Right? There's other times that I know that it is really about me and you're getting the benefit of what the Lord is working me over with. And sometimes it's about us. I I can't tell you that I honestly know in this moment of time. But I will tell you that over the last several weeks, the focus on the kingdom of God has overwhelmed everything that I've been thinking it's overwhelmed everything that I've been doing. It's, it's, it's caused my mind to think, not because of the little bracelets, but what would Jesus do? What does Jesus expect? What would Jesus say as he relayed the message of the kingdom of God, the perfection of God that will ultimately reign forevermore? We sang it, right? Last week when I finished, uh, there were three takeaways. The first one was this. The message of the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, matters to the gospel message today. Matthew makes it clear that the way in which the kingdom of heaven invades the kingdom of earth, the, the way the kingdom of God overwhelms the kingdom of man, is through this gospel message of repent. The kingdom of heaven is clearly linked to the gospel. Second, the response of kingdom citizens should be to proclaim the message of the kingdom. It's important that we see in John the Baptist, in Jesus, in the disciples, that they all preach the same message and how the good news of the gospel is tied to this message of repentance, this change of mind and purpose and position and place. And that rejecting the call, rejecting the kingdom of God, has consequences. The third was kingdom citizens are the counter to the messages that draw people away from the kingdom of heaven. Those are the messages that rely on this faulty assumption that one can enter the kingdom of heaven by something they do by their own righteousness by their own works it's error they receive this faulty message believe in another way to enter the kingdom of heaven and there's consequences i read this week gordon fee is an author and has written a lot of stuff he's been a professor and and said a lot of things and and, and this is what he said when he was giving a lecture at the regent college he said If you do not deal with, my words, paraphrasing, you do not deal with, you do not get into, you do not understand the kingdom of God, then you understand zero about Jesus. He said, at the end of the day, we have made the kingdom of God about something that it is not. And as a result, we have taken Jesus out of our understanding of the gospel. Now, he was talking to a Christian college and people that were purportedly of the kingdom, right? It's it's interesting. I, I had several people tell me last week that they got stuck on the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and that tripped them up. Please let me tell you that was not the goal, okay? Wasn't wasn't the goal. And so I want to I want to try to use just a little bit of a different tact, a little bit of a different angle, and, and hopefully see things a bit more clear. I mentioned last week that the people in Jesus' day, the disciples that he was talking to about the kingdom of God, the Pharisees that were hearing the, the things about the kingdom of God, the everyday people that were hearing things about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they, they had an idea and understood the kingdom. Or a kingdom in in two ways. One, they understood it as a place or a people, and they also understood it as a rule or a reign. They they got the picture of what a kingdom was about. And and though we're we're not surrounded by the same uh, governmental structures, we're we're not surrounded by. The same reference point. We actually do have a little bit of a reference point that I think is is helpful. So Saudi Arabia. How many know that there is a place called Saudi Arabia? Okay, good. And you could probably find it on a map if you took long enough, or or you would probably not even use a map. You'd just say, "Hey Siri, find me Saudi Arabia," and she would dutifully, if she's even a she. I, I don't even know. But Saudi Arabia is called a kingdom, right? Saudi Arabia is called a kingdom and it's a place and a people. Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud is the king of Saudi Arabia. He's the one that rules and reigns there. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you knew that Salman bin Abdulaziz al-Saud was the king of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Wow. I was expecting like three hands. There was like 12. But there was nobody over uh, or, or under 50 that knew that answer to that question. So how many of you, when you think of Saudi Arabia, you have in your mind... A picture of maybe what the people look like. Yeah? Um, Maybe you even have an idea of some of the places that you've heard about regarding Saudi Arabia, like Riyadh, which is the capital city, like Medina and Mecca right the religious sites for islam or or maybe you know that they are a very wealthy nation that they have a lot of resources and that comes primarily from the oil fields and some of those things or maybe it's because you have heard things about saudi arabia that it's it's this absolute monarch and that the the basis for all or the source for all of its law is sharia And you may not understand all of what it is, may not know, maybe you do, but you've heard it and that's your reference point. And and you've seen things, maybe heard things that these royal decrees can be made and people follow these royal decrees. Whatever you know, when you think of that kingdom of Saudi Arabia, do you think about the place and the people or do you think about Salman bin Abdul, right? What, what, do you, what do you think about when you think about Saudi Arabia? And, and maybe that, that's a better approach. Maybe in trying not to go too far in the weeds, we kind of ended up there by my leading you. Um, but how do we get out of them? Well, the illustration about Saudi Arabia actually helped me a little bit because the, the view of that kingdom has to be seen as two sides to the same coin. It's both a people and a place, and it's a rulership and a reign of a king. And though describing the same thing, there is a a different perspective or point of view. There are differing characteristics. There are differing thoughts and feelings there, when, when talking about each. If all you're going to do is talk about the king, then you're going to be talking in one way, thinking in one way, feeling in one way about this kingdom. If all you're going to do is talk about the places and the people, you're going to feel one way about this kingdom. So as, as we bring this into the biblical discussion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the rest of the writers, we're, we're, simp- we're not simply bringing into view two sides of the same coin. They were also taking things from a simply physical view in terms of the kingdom into a spiritual one. And in doing so, when they presented the kingdom of God's side of the coin, his rule and reign, the, the, the view must have included and, and been distinct from and opposite to the kingdom of man. This is God ruling and when they presented the kingdom of heaven side of it, the, the side that we might think more of a place or a group of people, the view must include that which is distinct from and opposite to any kingdom that could possibly be on this earth at this time. That's what Jesus would describe to them, that's what Jesus would preach. And that's what Jesus would call them to submit to. And, and maybe that's some of the trouble understanding why this was and is so vital to the gospel. The idea of a king ruling a kingdom with absolute power and absolute authority has kind of been relegated to history. Even even in countries like Saudi Arabia, though the, though the king's a, a very important leader, when he makes a decree, it's, it's viewed by the people as a regulation or kind of a guideline because they know that in their country, anything that's done is subject to the true law, the real law, which is founded in Sharia. And even in ancient time, those, those kingdoms that were ruled by kings, whose words seemed absolute, whose power seemed to be unchecked, who did whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do it, they were often overthrown. There was often revolt. They were often removed and sometimes even killed. And then the kingdom changed just a little bit. The the modern equivalent does not have that problem, because other than a couple of occasions, most of the kings of any kingdoms are basically kind of cultural or ceremonial type leaders and rulers, and while they exercise a certain influence or maybe even a certain power to some degree, um, it's it's very little, and that's what makes this message of Jesus so unique. everything that's going on because that is not what jesus was declaring to people he was declaring one kingdom one rule never to be extinguished Jesus Jesus was declaring what the the prophets had foretold regarding what God said about himself. One author put it this way, that God himself would be the absolute king who rules over his kingdom with sole supremacy, absolute sovereignty, and the unrestrained free exercise of his will. Now, the times that we see that unrestrained exercise of the will is normally in little people. Right? Because the big people have been through enough of life to know that their will can be restrained. Their will can be overridden. Their, their will can be ruled by one. Jesus would be the one who could not be overthrown. He could not be removed. Or even see his rule ended in some way. This is how the Apostle Paul kind of grabbed that picture in 1 Timothy 6. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Jesus would present to them a king and a kingdom that could not be seen by normal means, but must be understood and received through spiritual transformation taking place in the minds and the hearts and the understanding of the people. That's what Jesus said. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees, Luke 17, as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Wait a minute. What do you mean? It's in? I can't see it. I I. I and it's here. With these declarations, the the people would reject him, and ultimately reject his message of the kingdom of God. Imagine this. Imagine if like most Christians believe who listen to certain radio stations or certain groups or whatever, most people believe that the message of Jesus, this was a survey that was done several years ago, most people believe that the message of Jesus on the planet was love. Jesus came to tell everybody about love. Love your neighbor, right? Love God. That, that was his whole message. It was just, it was just simply love. Kind of the Oprah version of the gospel, right? Right? And yet, do you really believe that if Jesus would have been going around and maybe he had like, you know, feathers in his hair and, and you know, his robe had a little tassel thingies on them and, and they, they had a little you know, band following him around and, and all he was talking about was love, do you think they would have really killed him for just saying, look, you need to love everybody? No. I, I've always held this maxim for life in leadership and it might be original to me but more than likely I picked it up somewhere. Okay, so I'm kind of giving you that. It goes like this. People want a leader right up until the time they get one and then they want something else. People want a leader right up until the time they get one and then they want something else. The reason people rejected Jesus and the message of the kingdom is many but they were anxious in that moment of time for this new order to take place in their world one where they could prosper they wouldn't be under somebody else's thumb they could could not suffer loss but would not really be controlled by somebody else Somebody who would have complete authority over them. They thought heaven to be a wonderful place. Right? I mean, we have all these even colloquial expressions that we use in our culture. Oh, for heaven's sake. Right? That, that kind of stuff. We, we've, we've brought heaven into this thing where, where we think it's just this wonderful place or it's something worth referencing. And the people of that day were the same way. This this place that was wonderful, the the place of eternal life, and and they would would definitely like to see, even in this moment of time, right here, right now, the influence of heaven on the earth. Because it couldn't be anything but good if that would take place. But what they didn't want to see is that influence of heaven on earth if it didn't allow them to get their way. To do what they pleased, to somehow delay their gratification that they wanted. You remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? In Matthew 19. Young man says to him, all these things I have kept and what what am I still lacking? Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This was heaven coming to earth right then and right now. Jesus was giving him the prescription for his need. He heard the statement. He went away grieving because he owned much property. He liked the idea of what a place like heaven was. Perfection and beauty. But he didn't necessarily want heaven interrupting his current life and lifestyle. He, he didn't want an authority, an absolute authority to tell him, look, this is what you need to do if you are going to truly live. And yet think about the context that Jesus comes into as he begins to preach this message of the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, kingdoms and their rulers came and went. The, the land and the boundaries of that land sometimes shifted. You go to maps in, in, when you used to go to maps in your Bible, the physical book that at the end you turned to and there were pictures there, right? You would look and you would see how the Old Testament lands moved and shaped, and this one took control, and this kingdom took over, and this king was. And, and you would see the the shaping and the shifting of all. Did I wake somebody up just now? You would see all the shaping and the shifting of that because it was these boundaries were being moved around, and these kings and these kingdoms were were constantly in flux. When Israel became a kingdom and and had its way in getting a king the people thought that was great. Even though they had been warned of what a king would do and what all of those things would look like, they thought it was great. Right up until men did what men do and the kingdom split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and things became pretty unstable. Enter into that other kings, other kingdoms, exile from their lands, The hope for God's rule over the earth manifested through his use of Israel disappearing. But all hope was not lost. Enter the prophets. And and there are many messages of reminder that God was not done yet. So though kings failed, though people failed, God would not fail to rule and reign over his people To be the sovereign of Israel and his world through his appointed king. One day God would, by his power and by his might, deliver his people. He would usher in a new creation itself and renew his reign over all things. This was the message from the prophets. And their writings reflect this message. For instance, Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they they shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God, strengthen the hands of the weak and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have... An anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance with recompense of God, He will come and save you now. This is written in it 's not a sort of flowing time order these passages that i 'm going to read to you, but they all center around this thing, same theme, verse eight, and a highway shall be there, and it will be called the way of holiness, the unclean shall. Uh, not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall there be any ravenous beast to come upon it they shall not be found there but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy will be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away Isaiah speaks of God's deliverance of his, his people in this way as he reestablishes the, this kingdom of God. Go on up to the mountain high, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend the flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. What was clear in the prophets was that even though earthly kings failed and the kingdoms would be in disarray, God did not fail and his kingdom will not be in disarray. In fact, his king and his kingdom would be seen in all of its power, He would restore things through salvation and the Savior who rescues the people. God's kingdom would be established. These words were were seen to be life-giving as these people were in the midst of exile and they were coming and they were going and kingdoms were taking over and kingdoms were changing. These messages of life, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen. Your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. These words were seen as hope, Jeremiah. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where they've been driven and I will bring them back to the fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will be the shepherd over them who will care for them and, I will, and they shall not fear nor be dismayed Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Daniel, and in these days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Zechariah concludes, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be the one and his name one. The people longed for this. And and by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were ready. Or were they? They were ready for something. And in, in light of what we just read from the prophets, how should they have received the words of John the Baptist recording in Matthew? Now in those days he came repent, preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had been waiting, right? They wanted it. They, they were ready for it. They were, they were going to anxiously receive it. Or were they? How should they have received the, the words of Jesus in, in Mark 1? After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came in preaching the gospel of God, and we tied the gospel to the kingdom, right? The gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How should they have received that? They should have walked headlong into it, knowing that all of these things had been talked about and, and prophesied for generations, and now they were seeing the inauguration of this taking place. The prophets were looking ahead to a time in the future when God would return to rule over his people. Jesus was declaring that time is beginning. Jesus was letting them know the time is now. The reign of God has come near. Heaven has invaded earth. So turn to this kingdom of life and live in the light of its truth. So, Jesus proclaimed this. We should focus on it because there's something to be gleaned here that changes everything for us as citizens of this kingdom and changes everything for the people in which we will interact so how did Jesus proclaim to them the kingdom of God what did he proclaim to them about the kingdom of God and why was that so vital I'm going to give you five things Each of them are going to take a half hour. Just kidding. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God must be received. Mark 10. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. That Jesus would say in the midst of all these people, in the midst of all of these religious leaders... That the kingdom of God belongs to children. Those who, who didn't understand the theological meaning of it. They didn't understand the theological value of the words that were being spoken. They had done nothing to earn it. It must have been a real shock to the religious leaders of the day. And all of those that were following them. After all, they were trying to earn their way into heaven. They were putting their good works forward over and over as examples of who they were and and how lucky God was to have them as citizens in in his kingdom. They were placing their trust in, in those things that they were doing in order to be in right standing before God. And yet, the simple lesson of this message of the kingdom of God that Jesus was giving was this entrance into the kingdom of God is received, not earned. Imagine if you were an earner, how stinging that message would have been. Jesus taught, second, the kingdom of God was for the humble. Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we could get into each of these scriptures and do a deep dive. We're not going to. We're just going to hit the kind of the outskirts. But the blessed life that Jesus was talking about was one that was represented not by this outward righteous show. Hands held a little higher than your neighbor, right? Right? little more money given into the plate than the person next to you because that stuff was nothing more than a promotion of of self righteousness this this that jesus was talking about was was the true inner life that was transformed by the power of god into the likeness of the creator who is blessed forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It it was a simple lesson. The the kingdom of God is for the humble. It will not be entered by the proud and self-righteous. Now, I can't say... That Jay is a proud man. I can observe him, and I can see things about him. But you know what? He can fool me, and I would I would think he's the most humble guy in the world, right? I I can't say about Angie that that she is a proud woman. I can observe and I can try to see what I see and and, and, then compare it to the definition that I understand pride to be, but she can fool me. What we can't fool is the mirror most of the time, though if we harden our hearts enough, we can even fool our own mirror and accept ourselves as something that we're not, but we can never fool God. God. But when you've got these people that understand that no, it's not by the, the things that I do, it's got to be by God alone doing these things and starting these things and, and working in these things, and yet they're out there doing all of that stuff and they're they're lifting up their, their themselves and they're, and they're telling everybody how great they are and, and all of those things, right? They knew. Jesus even said, as kind of an exclamation point to this teaching in verse 20, because I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So Jesus was saying, look, scribes, Pharisees, I mean, you may fool these people, you may even fool yourself in the mirror. But you're not going to fool me, and and I don't want these people following your example because you are that message that the gospel of Christ is counter to. How must that have stung? The third thing, Jesus taught the kingdom was the priority and the solution for everything. Everything. Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The completeness of the kingdom is in view here, as, as well as its holiness and its purity, which brings about true life. There was a very common saying among the Jews and it was this, seek that to which other things are necessarily connected. Getting it? Seek that to which other things are necessarily connected. So they would have understood when Jesus made this comment, seek first the kingdom of God. He was saying, look, everything else is connected to that. That's where your mind needs to be. That's where your heart needs to be. It was a simple lesson. The kingdom of God is that to which everything else that one could ever need for life or would ever desire for something that gives life was found in the kingdom of God. This morning on my way here, I was I was talking to the Lord and and I was talking to him about something specific that had been a very focused desire of my attention over the last week. Something I was dwelling on a lot, thinking about a lot, and, and all of that, and and there was certain satisfaction in that thinking and that mulling it over, in in that giving it time and all of that stuff. And I as I was talking to the Lord about this, I said so. If I overlay the kingdom of God on this, what happens? Because this thing that I've been thinking about has, has given me a certain level of satisfaction in thinking about it. It's, it's given me a certain level of energy thinking about it. It's, it, right? it. it's given me all of that. But when I overlay the kingdom of God on it, is there anything about it? Is, is that the thing to which everything else connects? And the answer was, no, it's not. So my next question to myself, as I'm talking to myself in my truck, glad nobody was there, but as I'm talking to myself in in the truck, and I'm saying, so then why was I so consumed with thinking about this? Why was I so consumed with this being the center of things? Short-term satisfaction... A little bit of happiness. You know, you can name whatever it is for the thing that you make the center of your thinking. But Jesus taught something very different. The kingdom of God is the center from which everything else is connected. The fourth thing. Jesus taught the kingdom triumphs over everything. Adversary. I'm not going to read all the scripture here because the passage is a little long. But Matthew 13, he gave them another parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and began to bear grain then the tares became evident also. Now, this kind of got to the people that had planted all this stuff because they were like, what are we supposed to do? I mean, shouldn't we just rip this out? Because this this is a problem. And if you understand the context maybe just a little bit better, it helps because these these tares were wheat-ish seed. I can't use the word that one commentator from like the 1800s used because it's not a word that we would use like this. But it's a version of a sort of wheat-looking seed. And it looks a lot like wheat as it begins to grow. The only way to know the difference is when the wheat ripens up and it produces its kernels, and then you know, oh, that's not it. But the sowing of tares, these seeds, spreading these seeds in amongst the other seeds and allowing them to grow up, that, that was not done by accident. It was done by someone who wanted to destroy or maybe minimize the harvest of another. In fact, history tells us that it was often done with malice toward a neighbor so that the one that had the wheat that nobody had sown these in would have greater value for their wheat, they would they, they would sell more, and maybe they could even buy their neighbor's land because his crop didn't do very well. It was so prevalent in the day that the Romans actually had a law against it. Anytime you write a law against something, you know it probably happens quite a bit. When Jesus explained the parable more, he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. This was all about what the kingdom looks like. And the enemy who sowed them, these tares, is the devil. And the harvest is at the end of the age. So this was the kingdom looking now and forward, right? So just as the tares are gathered up and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks And those who commit lawless deeds, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteousness will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. It was a simple lesson. There's evil in the world. And though the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has invaded there is an enemy of God and of his kingdom. And this enemy is vigilant. He waited till they went to sleep. Crafty. Sewed so all these things in just the right way in the right place. He was able to cause angst and frustration among those who were doing the good work. And, and he's bent on limiting the work of God by every means necessary. And he may even seem to have limited success when he's doing it, but he does not win. Everything that he does perishes at the end. So here's the last one for today. Jesus taught the kingdom, of, taught the kingdom he proclaimed would have a small or humble beginning and a mature and glorious ending. Matthew 13, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it's full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come to nest in its branches. Now, if you want some boring reading read some of the commentaries on this verse and how they go into the nth detail to try to prove that what Jesus was saying was right or to prove that he was mistaken. It's not the biggest seed. And they quote this PhD guy that, you know, studies seeds and all of that stuff. And yet, again, like most of the Pharisees, they miss the whole point. There's a lot of observations and, and many different focuses on this parable. But the one thing that's true is that when Jesus came on the scene... There were many, many larger things in play in the world at that moment in time in the eyes of the people, especially larger than the birth of a baby in a manger. And though there was no doubt that every Jew that had studied the Scriptures believed that the kingdom of God would initiate on the earth and and would be great and glorious at some point, even as we've gone through the, the telling of the story of the birth of Christ and the incarnation and all of those things, there's a recognition that many, many people missed it. What Jesus teaches here, I believe, is is really remarkable because when you consider his ministry on the earth, the time frame seems small. Three years. The the influence seems small because the true work was invisible and it was being done in the hearts of people. And the results seem small. Eleven semi-committed disciples and a traitor. But look what it would become only shortly after his death and resurrection and to this day. The kingdom has become that mature tree. A place that provides shelter, true shelter, from the storms of this world. It provides protection from the evil one, and it has benefited the entire world. As I was thinking about this, I, I read this perspective by one scholar and I thought it was really good. This, this parable, he says, is a representation of the progress of the gospel in the world and what it was to be, and of the growth of grace in the soul that grace which leads the soul to the fullness of glory may begin and often does with a small, single desire. Maybe the desire to escape hell. Maybe the desire to enjoy God in heaven. You see, it was a simple lesson. Never underestimate the value of what God desires to do and can do In his desire to reconcile mankind to himself. The centrality of the kingdom of God in the preaching and teaching of Jesus is evident. His actions were all centered on the kingdom. And that kingdom coming and the things of the earth responding to and reflecting the will of God in heaven. To Jesus' message and ministry, there's a certain amount of, of wrestling, however, that has to be done with this kingdom focus. And it has to be done by all those who would say, I want to become a citizen of this kingdom, and all those who say, I am a citizen of this kingdom. They've got to wrestle with the kingdom focus. They've got to wrestle with the kingdom messages just as the people to whom he proclaimed them. Because as we do, the gospel unfolds in a way that truly changes everything. For instance, the, the five things that we looked at today. I'm to ask Ross to come back. Come on, Ross. If, if the kingdom is received, this is the wrestling part. This is the wrestling part. If the kingdom is received, why do so many people put so much confidence in their ability to earn it in their way? If the kingdom is received. Has the good news of that reception been forfeited for something else that is not the kingdom at all? If the kingdom is for the humble, why do so many who claim to belong to Jesus display such pride and self-righteousness in their life in Christ? Looking at another person or a people group and saying, oh, we're so much better than them. Not seeing themselves clearly. Has the good news been forfeited For something else. If the kingdom is the priority and the solution for everything one could ever need for life or would ever desire for that which gives life, why are so many so anxious? Has the good news? been forfeited for something else if the kingdom triumphs over any adversary and if there is a perfect eternal justice why is there fear of what men can do has the good news been forfeited for something else If the kingdom is ever expanding and there are more who have become citizens than when the king first announced his invasion of earth, should there not be greater and greater confidence in the king, greater hope in the message of truth, greater and greater desire to proclaim the great value of rejecting all other kingdoms and all other kings coming under the rule and reign and the protection and provision. Would this not be good news for a world in the grip of evil and wicked and the malicious one who is desiring to destroy everything? Has the good news been forfeited for something else? The vital nature of the message of the kingdom of God is that it translates into what kind of life is had, how that life is lived, and what message is proclaimed. I really believe that the focus of this and the reason the Lord has had my attention on this is because there are many kingdom principles. That we've either forgotten, we've not wrestled with, or we've just ignored. We are to be living as these kingdom citizens. We are to be proclaiming the message of life that it proclaims. As Paul said, that of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I'll ask you to wrestle with those five. Wrestle with the reality that it is received. See if maybe you are not in reception, but you're working real hard for it. Wrestle with the humility Of kingdom citizens, compare it to how you display your own life. This is a big one. Wrestle with the priority of the kingdom. That all things are connected to it, not the other way around. Wrestle with the kingdom's triumph over its adversary, so that maybe you won't live in fear of what you're seeing on the planet wrestle with the ever expanding nature of the kingdom and that God just might want to expand it in the person that you come in contact with next what are we living what are we proclaiming his kingdom or another and what does his kingdom look like in my life let's stand together as we conclude our time today